0: Hey, 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 what's cracking? And welcome back to another episode of Fat Man Radio, also known as Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio, brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com, and I am your host, Darren Fat Man McDuffie. So before we get into the show tonight, got a few announcements. As always, if you have not connected with me on social media, I advise you to do so or, or ask you to do so, rather. So my Twitter address is Fat underscore Man. You can connect with me on Twitter. Facebook is facebook.com slash I'm the fat man and YouTube is youtube.com fat body BC and fat is spelled P H A T for perfectly healthy and toned. So connect with me on those. I do a lot of great videos and I will continue to do those and would love for you to follow me on social media. Now, before we get into the show again, um, there's a couple of things um, I wanted to uh, Uh, tell you about. I'm actually going to be doing a talk here in another week on the 31st. I believe it's the last Saturday in May. And I'm going to be at a health fair locally here in South Florida talking about food sensitivities, which is something I'm very, very passionate about since um, I myself was able to uh, eliminate gluten from my diet. And and, uh, by doing that, I was able to get rid of arthritis, which I was diagnosed with. And I thought that it was just a problem that I had had uh, of getting old or getting older and playing basketball for a number of years, but just taking that one thing out of my diet actually helped me a great, great deal. And there's a lot of things that people don't know about food sensitivity. So I'm going to cover that. If you're in the South Florida area, I will have that information on Facebook and please do come out and listen to me uh, for that event, because there's a lot of foods out there that people are eating and think that they're healthy, but there is no healthy food uh, per uh, individual. So if you're someone that's eating something like broccoli and it's not healthy for you as an individual, then it can create inflammation in your body, and you would want to know that. And there's a couple of tests out there I'm going to talk about that you can take that will let you know what, flu, what foods your body actually reacts to, and you can eliminate them, and they're thus eliminating inflammation in your body. So, all right, tonight we have a great show, and I discovered this woman by reading another person's book. I believe that um, I had Jimmy Moore on the show. He had the book Cholesterol Clarity. If you want to go back into archives, you can listen to that show. But I kept reading his book, and she had a lot of great quotes in here, and I wanted to read one of her quotes in here that kind of got me to thinking, and I said, you know what, i got to have this woman on the show. So I'm going to read the quote. The quote says, sulfate deficiency is the key problem behind all modern diseases. Everything comes back to this. Sulfate deficiency is caused by a combination of three things, a severe reduction in the ability of sulfur in food because of food processing, exposure to environmental toxins, and lack of sun exposure. Our bodies require sulfate to detoxify our bodies, require sulfate to detoxify our bodies from the chemicals we are exposed to from plastic, pesticides, and aluminum. For example, glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup, which is widely used as a weed killer. Glyphosate actually disrupts sulfate transport to sulfate synthesis. Sunscreens often contain aluminum, which disrupts sulfate synthesis in the skin. Sunlight catalyzes sulfate synthesis in the skin. So if you're avoiding the sun and putting on sunscreen, you're preventing your skin from producing cholesterol sulfate. The skin is the major supplier of cholesterol sulfate to all the tissues, but thanks to various lifestyle choices, our skin is not able to do its job. So we're going to be getting into talking about this sulfur deficiency, the sun. I'm going to start talking about vitamin D and get Dr. Sniff's opinion on that. But before I do, I need to welcome her to the show. Good evening. Dr. Stephanie, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you tonight? I'm
1: great. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you for being on the show. And I told everyone um, how I discovered you from some great quotes in uh, Jimmy Moore's Cholesterol Clarity um, book. But you have a very, very interesting background. Can you share that with us? Cause I know you were, you were uh, a graduate of MIT, and you were actually trained in yeah. um, robotics. Is that correct?
1: Well, it's not quite correct. I, uh, I mean, I've seen that on the web, but it's not true. I have an oh. undergraduate degree in biology from MIT, in biology. Okay with a minor in food and nutrition. I mean, it's not well known because my Ph.D. is in computer science and electrical engineering, Mm -hmm. and most of my life I was doing research in computers, you know, computer software, developing dialogues, developing systems that allow human-computer conversation about information sources, so basically talking to the computer to get information from the web, sort of like Siri. I mean, basically we were doing stuff related to Siri, Uh, For many years before Siri, it finally became commercialized. If you Mm -hmm. know Siri, people probably don't like Siri, but Siri's a one shot. You know, you just ask a question, get an answer. But we were building actual conversations, which is much more challenging,
0: where it remembers and
1: what you said before.
0: How did you um, get into biology? I know that you started studying that, and you got pretty deep into that. When did that change occur?
1: Yeah, well, I've always been interested in biology, and I've never lost my roots in biology. It's actually really the thing I realize today, that that's where my passion is, and I kind of regret that I didn't stay with biology when I was young. It was easier to take the root of computer science, you know, and I wasn't good in the biology lab. I don't like the wet science. I was not able to do that, you know. I, I like the intellectual biology. <laughs> and So I've been, actually been able to make very good use of both of my... Sides, the biology and the computer science by using the computer science techniques to analyze the biology literature. And then you can discover, um, <clears throat> you can discover or you can organize the literature into um, a hierarchy that can reveal facts that may have been missing. People, you can learn things from the literature beyond what the literature is claiming by, by connecting the dots through computer science. This is what I believe. And mm-hmm. that's my I uh, <clears throat> continue that research at MIT in developing systems that will enable people to to do that. So basically have a pile of articles on a topic, let's say cancer, and you throw them at the computer and the computer churns them up and spits out an analysis of them, you know, summaries and things like that. And then you can search the um, the documents by paragraph by paragraph. So you can find a bunch of paragraphs on a combination of topics that the computer ha- thinks are interesting to look at. So it helps you to to figure things out because biology is an enormous enormous space i mean it's just mind-bogglingly big and uh no single human being can wrap their brain around all that stuff you know so i'm massively learning biology these days it's been wonderful i got involved really seven years ago uh because of a crisis i mean my husband was diagnosed with heart disease quite taken by surprise and we knew nothing about it at that time you know it was a one of those things where all of a sudden your life changes, and they put him on a high-dose statin after after that. He didn't have a heart attack, but they identified heart disease and put him on a high-dose statin. Of course, he immediately started having side effects. And so I felt really bad that I didn't know anything about heart disease at that point, really very little, you know. You don't really uh, learn about these things if you don't realize that you need to. <laughs> so mm-hmm. nothing like the motivation of health to get you interested. And, boy, I just poured over all the literature on Hard disease end on statin drugs, and I really, my instinct was that they were bad from the get-go. And mm-hmm. after not very long, I was convinced that I was right. And so I worked on him and finally got him to agree to go off the statins. Um, so he has been statin-free now for six years, and he's doing great. And um, he and I both very strongly believe that the statin drugs are doing far more harm than good when you look collectively at all the people who are taking them. It's a catastrophe. I think, that is solely brewing, you know, because it, they, just like glyphosate, by way, the way, glyphosate is the chemical in Roundup, and I've identified that one as well. So I've got a short list of, of substances. Actually, I can name three, glyphosate, statin drugs, and aluminum. They all have the same property, really, the same characteristics, that they're very common in our environment, and we think they're safe, you know. And then mm-hmm. we use them extensively, and we think they're really great for what they do. And so um, we don't realize that we're slowly poisoning ourselves. All three of them have that insidious behavior that they slowly erode your health. And so you you basically get older faster. And statin drugs in particular are dramatic that way. So I started using my skills in computer science to analyze uh, mm-hmm. the online reports of people's side effects on statin drugs. And I used my statistical methods on, on language processing and discovered all kinds of side effects, and then I could go to the literature and verify them, you know, by finding articles that confirmed that I was right. I mean, for example, I found diabetes, and then that came out shortly after that that statins were causing. They, they mm-hmm. increase your risk to diabetes, which is very ironic because they're supposed to be protecting you from heart disease, and diabetes is a very strong risk factor for heart disease. So it doesn't make any sense, you know, that they're causing diabetes. But they also cause all kinds of other um, things like hair loss and hearing loss and arthritis and uh, brain fog and physical frailty, muscle pain and weakness. I mean, these are all signs of getting old, you know? So statins, mm-hmm. I would say, make, as you read in the quote, I think, statins make you grow older faster. And um, I just think it's ridiculous that people are taking them.
0: Yeah, I, um, I remember uh, my background is in the pharmaceutical industry, and I remember at the time, I didn't sell those particular products, but I knew people that did sell those, uh, the statins. And I remember certain things that came out about Lipitor, and this was in 2002, 2003. And I remember going into the doctor, and they would always say, you have high cholesterol, and they would always want to put me on um, Lipitor or some other statin. And I, I would always refuse it. I, and at, at that time, I just had this this uh, fear of cholesterol because I thought it caused heart mm-hmm. disease, and
1: well, they, they instill that in you.
0: Yeah, yeah. So and I remember
1: fear,
0: yeah. I remember telling the doctor, I said, you know what, doc? I said, I will eat oatmeal until it comes out of my ears before <laughs> I actually do these, do these statins. And then now, you know, I think within the last year or two, just mentioning Jimmy Moore's Cholesterol Clarity Book, it's starting to come to the forefront that cholesterol is good for us. And you share that same sentiment, don't you?
1: I absolutely do. In fact, it's extremely ironic that, in fact, my husband and I eat a high-fat, high-cholesterol diet. We eat a lot of animal-based fats, which I Mm -hmm. think are by far the healthiest fats, and uh, they're loaded with cholesterol. You know, that's where the cholesterol comes from, the animal-based fats. And uh, ironically, I think heart disease is actually a cholesterol deficiency problem, which, I mean, people look cross-eyed when I say that. They think I must be crazy, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's the reason why there's cholesterol in the plaque is because it's there as a private stash for the heart. The heart desperately needs that cholesterol. And in fact, I have to tell a story about the statin drug study that I did because I did this thing where I threw the, all the papers into the mix and did the computer churn, and it came up with the top, the list of the most. Uh, it had a, a, pr- a parameter that would look at the comparison between the word frequencies in these documents and the word frequencies in uh, Google over all overall all of the you know internet. So basically looking for words that are really unusually overrepresented in this data. And I and you can do that, and you get, of course, the top words of all things like statins and Lipitor and stuff like that. But the very highest scoring word by my f- formula was something called Atrogen 1, A-T-R-O-G-I-N-1. 1. And I looked at that word, and I said, geez, I don't know what this word is. You know, this is how my computer can help me, because, of course, I became very interested in that word, because it was... By my score, it was extremely unusually overrepresented in my in the papers that I had on statin drugs. Turned out to be a really important word because it, it it's a word that what it is is a is an, um, a molecule in the body that the muscle cells produce when they're stressed, and it's mm-hmm. an indicator of muscle failure. It's an indicator of a muscle's you know atrophy, which is basically the muscles are falling apart and they're releasing this. This molecules indicate that, and this is what statins induce in the muscles, and then they induce it in the heart as well. And in the heart, it's associated with heart failure. So what happens is that the muscles, statins enormously cause muscle pain and weakness. And it's ironic because you get people out, and you tell them, you know, take your statin drug and exercise every day, and the poor person is in such pain, you know, their muscles are just falling apart. People who are in really good physical shape have much worse uh, response to statin drugs; mm-hmm. they get a lot more side effects. So, because the muscles are really being stressed by the statin, and your your, your skeletal muscles are taking the heat, you know, and eventually they become so exhausted they can't do it anymore, and that's when you get into heart failure. So the muscle, and of course heart failure was one of the things that came out in my statistical studies of the statin side effect reports that were produced by just individuals who were taking them. So it all fits together, you know. The literature, Mm -hmm. what I do, it's so fun, because I do the literature combined with the data that I have on the web from the, from the various reports that individuals are providing about their own health records. You combine mm-hmm. those two, and you can get really interesting stuff out of that.
0: Yeah, what's even more ironic is, um, I think, is that, uh, I, I mean, I live in South Florida, so we have an older population here, and you see a lot of the older population, they are being prescribed statins. And, it's, yes. you know, it's a known fact that as we grow older, we lose muscle, so you have a lot of older people that are already losing muscle and then you throw the statins in and that kinda of creates the situation that, that you just said. So, you know, a lot of them can't exercise because they're you know, they're already weak from the loss of muscle mass from just aging and then you throw a statin on top of that.
1: Yeah, it just makes them age faster. Their muscles are gonna and also their bones, by the way. Both their muscles and their bones are affected by the statin. And so we have all these broken bones. I mean, we have such a terrible problem with elderly people falling and breaking a bone right now. It's going to get much worse before it gets, It's not, you know, it's just going to keep getting worse because Mm -hmm. these statin drugs are causing it. And, you know, now I get amused, really, when I go to the airport and I see the big line of wheelchairs waiting for the airplane. I mean, so many people can barely move these days. You know, I just see so many more wheelchairs or people, you know, walking obviously in agony or, you know, bent over. I mean, just see that all over the place. It just seems like, you know, so many people are just having trouble with their physical weakness
0: you know yeah it's really um,
1: disturbing to me because they all don't realize it. it's like the frog you know in the water that's slowly heating up and they don't realize yeah that they're, yeah they're, yeah
0: they're i have boiling. a friend who uses that analogy <laughs> and she uses that analogy a lot um let's get into we we're talking about muscles let's kind of get in the blood and let's start it off with a kind of jump off point of um uh homocysteine uh how does homocysteine yes. relate to sulfur and explain that whole what what does homocysteine do homocysteine do, and how does that relate to sulfur? I think that's a a good place to start.
1: That's a great question. Um, So, first of all, homocysteine is a sulfur-containing molecule, and it's a, a critical member of a whole sulfur system in the body that involves a certain set of molecules, all of which are really, really important to health. And homocysteine uh, elevated homocysteine in the blood is a risk factor for heart disease that's actually a stronger risk factor than elevated cholesterol. So high homocysteine in the blood means that you're likely to have heart issues. What's really interesting is that homocysteine can turn into sulfate, and uh, it, basically it will react with superoxide. It needs some help from a couple of vitamins, vitamin A and vitamin C, and um it will a chemical reaction will convert the homocysteine into sulfate, assuming that there is superoxide available to supply the oxygen, because sulfate is S-sulfur plus four oxygen molecules plus a negative two charge. All of that is important. So it's a sulfur that's been oxidized, which means it's been combined with oxygen. So superoxide is a, uh, it's an oxygen molecule, but it has a negative charge, and that negative charge makes it very uh, inflammatory. So when you talk about inflammation, you know that's the thing that's a buzzword like inflammation is behind all disease the inflammation is producing the superoxide that's allowing you to make the sulfate so that you can produce cholesterol sulfate which can then be supplied to the heart so the the plaque is waiting it has a bunch of cholesterol being stored desperately in need of sulfate to complete it and once the sulfate is available the cholesterol can become cholesterol sulfate and be shipped out And delivered to the heart it delivers to the heart both the cholesterol and the sulfate both of which are really really important to the heart's heart's health Mm -hmm. so the homocysteine is needed as a precursor to the sulfate that's going to solve the problem that is the huge problem that faces everybody
0: today yeah yeah and most people don't even understand uh, homocysteine and how the 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 levels uh, become elevated and how that's a precursor to uh, heart disease Um, so with sulfur, I know another buzzword is cholesterol sulfate, and one thing that intrigued me about that was the fact that you were saying something about the skin, and when immediately when you said something about the skin, I started to think um, I actually have Dr. Michael Holick. He's going to be on the show next week, next Wednesday, talking about the vitamin D solution. And immediately when you were saying something about the skin on the video, I'm like, how does this this whole sulfur and vitamin D thing um, work together? Can you comment on that?
1: Yes, well, I am really uh, delighted with what we figured out, and I do believe we're right. This is a theory, so I have to be you know clear that this is you'll only find this in in papers written by me. But I've published and my colleagues, I'm working with a number of people. We've published several papers now on this topic. One went into quite deep uh, deep um, detail about our theory, which I think is really amazing if it's true, which is that um, the skin, uh, first of all, you can't imagine that we don't use sunlight. Obviously, we use sunlight to make vitamin D, but people sort of think, oh, yeah, that's what it is. They think sunlight, vitamin D, and that's the end of it. And they don't think, is there something else going on besides the vitamin D? Well, it would not make sense that we wouldn't use the sun as a source of energy, just the way the plants do. You know, we know that the plants depend upon the sun to make make, um, chlorophyll, which is, of course, the base of all of our food. But animals use the sun as well. They would be foolish not to. It's it's an excellent source of energy. Light is a wonderful source of energy. And so we've got got these molecules that have figured out how to use the sun to oxidize its oxygen in order to make sulfate. So it's the same thing. The sulfur needs to have... Oxidized oxygen, which is oxygen with that minus charge, and it will mm-hmm. become oxidized because of the response to the sun's light. And then you have this elegant system in the plasma membrane of the red blood cells, of the sk- cells in the skin, of the platelets—all of them have this molecule, which I call, which is called enos, that we believe <coughs> is able to make sulfate out of sulfur. Um, using sunlight. And so if this is true, then that is the more important thing that happens when you get sun exposure to the skin. I was also really excited recently to find out that the pineal gland which sits right behind the eyes also Mm -hmm. makes sulfate. It makes heparin sulfate in response to sunlight. And so people don't think oh, it's making the sulfate. They don't realize that, but I'm almost sure that's what it's doing. And it also has this molecule enose. Those cells in the pineal gland have this molecule that you need to make the sulfate. So I believe that the more important thing that happens when you get when you get your skin or your eyes exposed to the sun is this production of sulfate. So when you use things like sunscreen and sunglasses, you are preventing your body from being able to do that, and therefore you're depriving your body of sulfate, which of course is the um, base of all disease, all modern diseases. so that I mean there you have it.
0: Yeah, I agree with you on the on the sun because usually uh, when I'm at work, I will walk out and just get out of the building and go get some sun. Now I live in South Florida, so I have to have my sunglasses because our sun yeah, they get, well you're lucky. You get,
1: pretty yeah. so yeah, we <laughs> get pretty bright. Yeah, yeah, we
0: get pretty bright. One of the things I wanted to touch on too is um, you mentioned zinc as something that has to do with activating the sulfur or the sulfate. And one thing that's very, very interesting to me is that vitamin D is considered a hormone. And I think that, you know, zinc is when you look at people that have low testosterone, a lot of men, they have low zinc. And, you know, women can have low testosterone, too, and it can affect, you know, their libido. Um, Is this tied in together in some respects, that having the zinc so you can activate the sulfate and how does that all uh, put Put together, oh, I, I am am I done. putting that in my mind together right?
1: You are doing a wonderful job. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> well, yeah, so what's really interesting about this enos molecule that I mentioned is that it actually, two of them go together to make something called a dimer, and mm-hmm. they, they form a cavity between the two enos molecules, and inside that cavity is a single zinc atom. And the interesting thing is that although lots of papers have been written about enos, if people mention that zinc atom, they always say, well, there's this cavity, there's this zinc atom in there, we don't know what it's for, it doesn't have anything to do with... Because I should say that eNOS, it's called endothelial nitric oxide synthase, and it's well known for its ability to make nitric oxide. But in making nitric oxide, it doesn't use that zinc atom at all. And it also is a, is a member of a family of enzymes called type enzymes, cytochrome P450 enzymes, and they don't understand why it's a type enzyme either because the other SYPE enzymes do things like oxidizing sulfur, but eNOS oxidizes nitrogen to make nitrate, you know. So it's like a kind of a weird enzyme. They don't understand why it, it's not—it's not, it's not a normal member of its class. But it also makes superoxide, and they know eNOS makes superoxide, and they have a lot of papers about eNOS making superoxide, and they call that a—you a know—it's a dysfunction. It's a dysfunctional, um, a bad form of eNOS is making superoxide instead of making nitric oxide. But the problem is that. That eNOS needs a lot of stuff to make to use this eNOS to use the superoxide correctly, and and one of the things it needs is the zinc atom. So if it doesn't have the zinc atom, then the superoxide is going to do bad stuff because it's going to superoxide will cause all kinds of damage because it's a reactive one of those reactive oxygen species or radical. You know, you hear about these oxygen radicals and stuff. Those are the things that cause all the damage. So the superoxide has to be very, very specially managed. And I think the way it works normally is that that zinc atom attracts the superoxide into that cavity because the zinc is a positive charge and the superoxide is negatively charged. So it's going to pull it in. And then the enos molecule has these sulfurs hanging out all around that zinc atom. So it's really perfect because those sulfurs are waiting to get oxidized. So it really has set up a very lovely factory inside that cavity where the zinc atom is a star, you know, to draw in the superoxide and keep it from going someplace else and doing damage. So as long as that zinc atom's in place, it's going to work great. But if that zinc atom's not there, it's going to have trouble and you're going to have problems.
0: Right. And the so, yes, uh, zinc is
1: really important for the sulfate. And the sulfate is really important for the testosterone because testosterone is transported in the blood as testosterone sulfate. So if there's not enough sulfate, you can't transport the testosterone.
0: I was just going to ask you that. You answered my question without me even asking it. Um, <laughs> with regard to sulfur, what are some foods that we can eat that actually uh, gets our sulfur content up there? Because I know um, people are saying, well, what, what, they, they don't even know what sulfur is. Most people don't even know what sulfur is. But what are some foods that are very, very rich in sulfur?
1: Well, first of all, animal protein is a really good source of the sulfur amino acids. You know, this is cysteine, methionine. Taurine. Taurine is an interesting one. Taurine is found uh, in high concentrations in cold-water fish, I and mean, that contains a sulfonate. It's the only um, amino acid that contains sulfonate, which is a close cousin to sulfate, so it just needs a little bit of a nudge to become sulfate. Um, and so fish and seafood and um, meat, of course, uh, grass-fed beef, I mean, I recommend, of course, extremely high-quality foods. Um, I think it, you're, you're wise to spend extra money on good-quality food categorically, you know, so grass-fed beef, organic chicken, you know, these are all good sources of sulfur on the animal side. On the plant side, you have some great choices. I love garlic and onion, and both of those are fantastic sources of sulfur. And also the you mentioned broccoli. Uh, so uh, broccoli mm-hmm. and all the cruciferous vegetables, um cauliflower, broccoli, um cabbage, Brussels sprouts, those are all good sources on the on the vegetable side of sulfur and then eggs i should really mention eggs because eggs are a real bargain i think of course organic you know never caged i mean all the stuff
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm, Eggs, mm -hmm. Um,
1: extremely healthy not just because they contain sulfur but because they contain all these other vitamins and minerals that are depleted in our modern diet you know so eggs are because they have everything that's needed to make a chick they obviously have a broad spectrum of vitamins and minerals in it so they're very healthy
0: Yeah, what about if someone is we have this whole debate going back and forth about, you know, vegetarians versus meat eaters and it, the debate always rages on. Is it possible for us to get another enough sulfur if we are not eating animal fats or animal You
1: know it protein? must be because I mean there're plenty of vegetarians in the world, right? In India mm-hmm. all the vegetarians and um it might be uh the issue might be sulfur transport and I've talked about this as well. So for transport, sulfate transport is quite challenging, and I've I've become fascinated by that because when you look at a bunch of different um, substances that are considered to be healthy in plants, you know, you hear about resveratrol and curcumin and uh, in general sort of flavonoids, you know, these things that are found in like chocolate and tea, you know, you, you hear about these things being good for you because they have these antioxidants like flavonoids and resveratrol, these things are all really interesting because when you study, and I've looked into it, there are papers that are really, they show their puzzlement because if you take resveratrol, for example, it doesn't really get into the blood. You know, it just goes around and around and around between the gut and the liver, and Mm -hmm. it it never makes it into the main bloodstream. So people are like, well, how could it possibly be good for the brain because it never gets there, you know? And so people have dismissed it for that reason. Um, But the trick is that these things, these polyphenols, transport sulfate. So they can carry sulfate from the gut to the liver, which is really, really important for the liver's health. And the liver can make cholesterol sulfate from that, and then you're good to go because that'll go out. The cholesterol sulfate will go out into the body. So the point of it, of these uh, antioxidant molecules, is only to carry sulfate from the gut to the liver. That's what I believe. Which is a very important thing to do because otherwise you have to waste the sulfate. You just it just goes straight out, and you don't you aren't able to absorb it. You need these molecules in order to be able to absorb the sulfate that you eat.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would I would, I would definitely agree on that. Um, you mentioned we mentioned foods, and we mentioned uh, vegetarians. And the, is there is there another way to increase sulfur in the body other than eating more uh, animal proteins? Because there's a there comes a limit when you can't eat. A lot of protein. Is there like an upward right, limit Right, I don't to how recommend eating a
1: lot of protein. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I definitely recommend eating the green vegetables and the onions and garlics. Uh, we eat well. I guess we eat pretty much a paleo diet. Although I do eat a lot of um, cheese myself. I like fermented dairy, which I think is not part of paleo. But um, but we we eat a lot of meat and seafood and eggs and then uh, fresh green vegetables. Uh, you know, just stir fried in oil. And in fact, we like uh, coconut oil. And lard mm-hmm. as the um, oils to cook in. We absolutely would not use corn oil, so- soybean oil, you know, any of those cheap vegetable oils. Those things, especially if they're not organic, they are toxic. So, yeah, where but, you, know, you find, Throw those away.
0: Where do you find lard at? Coconut oil is pretty um, easy for us to come by here in you know in Florida. Well, lard is hard to
1: find, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, lard <laughs> you know, my is lard husband's hard to cook in my family, and he's a, he's an awesome cook. And I'll tell you what he did. Which he did this, and he I was so fascinated. He's resourceful. He ordered on the web. He got um, a big chunk of um, organic pork fat, and he chopped it up into into pieces, and he, and he cooked it for a long, long time in like a pressure cooker, I guess, and then uh, like for hours, and it, and it, and the fat drizzled down into these little specks, you know, and then it all became oil, and then he he poured it through a you know sieve, and then he he put it in the refrigerator and turned it into a nice white uh, oil that works great. Uh, so you can make your own lard. You can also buy lard. Probably more like at Chinese grocery stores. I mean, you, you I'm, you know, we try at Whole Foods. We say, yeah, "Have you got lard?" They say, "No, we don't have lard." I mean, it's not something that is carried in the normal American markets, which it should be. It used to be the fat that they used. You know, back in the late 1800s, that's all they used. Butter, of course, is also good. So, lard, butter, and coconut oil. I think those three. Peanut oil is not bad either. But uh, and olive oil is good, but not for cooking. It's good for salads and things. And of course, again, organic. You know um top of the line (laughs) i believe in spending money on food i will say that i think it's such a good uh trade-off to keep yourself healthy because you can spend a lot of money on health issues and you won't enjoy being sick you know if you don't spend the money to get
0: the high quality food yeah, we had experience with a beef tallow. If I make, like, french fries or something in a beef tallow, we can normally get from U.S. Wellness, but I've never seen lard. I don't eat lard, but for the beef listeners Beef tallow here, might we, not be
1: bad either. I would think um, right. if you can get it from grass-fed beef, I think that would be also good. We don't use it, but I would think it would be good.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's get into something, and we, we want to start talking about diet. And you mentioned that you did a high-fat diet, and I was looking through one of your videos, and you said you were never fooled by the low-fat diet craze. Can you comment on that? I now? never was. You're yeah, I'm proud of myself one. for that. I'm
1: really proud of myself. <laughs> I don't know how it is that I just always knew that fats were good. I mean, I I loved butter when I was a kid, you know, and I and I like cheese and. Um, And I knew that low-fat milk, non-fat milk just tastes so – it doesn't taste good, you know. I mean, it's just if the fat isn't in there, it doesn't taste good. And and I feel you should be eating things the way nature presents them, you know. If the the fat is part of the product, then it should be um, good for you. And um, so instinctively, I just always uh, – in fact, I have boycotted – I won't even buy a food that would – I mean, for example, if an apple said – advertise that it was non-fat – I wouldn't buy it. So any time a product says low-fat, non-fat, fat-free, reduced fat, I won't buy it. You know, Even if it's something I would comfortably eat and it's a natural, it comes naturally that way, just because it's advertising that point, I won't buy it as a policy. And I've been that way all my life. And so um, lately, of course, I feel very confident that I'm right about that. In the old days, I did it just on instinct, but eventually I did the research to convince myself that I was right. So yeah, yes, I've never, know. I've never bought, uh, used low fat. Always bought whole milk. In fact, I like uh, even uh, sour cream, full fat sour cream. I think that's a great because that's fermented too. I really like the fermented dairy. I mean, fermented in general, by the way, is another good, good thing to add to your diet. And I think does that go into the paleo or not?
0: I'm not sure. I'm not I'm sure not, if that's well, that part, of part of the I'm paleo. actually going to look into somebody to come on and talk about the, uh, the paleo diet. I'm, I just know what I know. I'm not real like a yeah. start. Uh, follower of paleo but um, I would love to get someone on to talk about that Um, with regards to obesity and we are having a big Mm -hmm. big problem with that and one of the things that now I'm putting my head around is sulfur vitamin D and I know uh, upon reading a book now finishing up the vitamin D Mm -hmm. solution that Michael Hollick is saying that people who are overweight have very, very low vitamin D levels. Can we extend that to say they also are very sulfur deficient? And how does that whole thing kind of wrap around each other?
1: Yes. I mean, I think that's probably true, that the sulfur deficiency goes with the vitamin D deficiency. Actually, I discovered something incredibly interesting about vitamin D um, mm-hmm. Well, I've sort of, I mean, I've been studying glyphosate, as I said. This is the Roundup, uh, the, the weed killer in Roundup. I think that glyphosate is uh, almost single-handedly responsible for the obesity epidemic. And uh, I looked at a, um, there was a paper I read that was arguing that sugar was responsible for the obesity epidemic, and it showed a plot that went all the way back to like 1900 and showed that um, we were starting to get fat. We sort of had a slope. We were rising in obesity over the second half of the. 1900s. And sugar, of course, was going up even faster than that. But at 1975, there's a corner in the curve on obesity. And all of a sudden, the slope gets much higher, and it just shoots straight up, starting in 1975. And that's when glyphosate was introduced into the food chain. Now, of course, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. But Mm -hmm. I also, um, I know someone named Nancy Swanson, who's been looking through medical records, and making plots of of glyphosate usage on corn and soy. Her name is Nancy Swanson. I said that, Nancy Swanson. She's got a great set of plots of glyphosate usage on corn and soy um, over time, and then she plots um, various disease records that you can get from the U.S. CDC and whatnot. So you can get all this data online, and you see remarkable correspondences. And one of them is obesity. Obesity and diabetes and autism and Alzheimer's disease are all going up almost exactly in line with glyphosate usage on corn and soy. So is the Roundup-ready corn, Roundup-ready roundup soy. Those are the base of the processed food chain. Those are now 90% Roundup-ready, and you pour the Roundup on them, they don't die. They soak it up. And the government is not measuring how much is in there, but there's a paper that just came out that showed that the conventional – Even though they were using Roundup to kill the weeds in the conventional soy, it didn't have any residue in it, whereas the uh, Roundup-ready soy had alarming levels of glyphosate in the the food that was produced from that soy. So we are getting more and more exposure to glyphosate in our food over time because they keep on using more and more of this stuff. And the reason why they use more and more is because there are these Roundup-ready weeds that are coming along Mm-hmm. Uh, following the example of the Roundup Ready crop, so you've got these weeds that are getting resistant to Roundup, so they have to use more toxic chemicals to kill the weeds, and it's an escalating war that we will not win. You know, we'll basically just all be incredibly sick uh, in the end, and um, and then you know we'll have to completely rethink how we do food because this is not going to work. So, yeah, I think obesity is due to Roundup. Uh, number one, I mean that's the most important. Reason And so people are getting fat because it's actually a healthy response because it's a way to hide the toxins in the fat cells. Mm -hmm. The fat tissue is actually a very convenient place to put toxins if you can't get rid of them. And Roundup prevents you from disposing of toxins because it disrupts the liver's ability to do that. And it also disrupts the ability to uh, to, um, activate vitamin D. So this is why we have a vitamin D epidemic these days because the Roundup is preventing the liver from activating it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh,
0: yeah, I, well, yeah, I've always thought that um obesity is just a, a form of inflammation because you got mm-hmm. the, you know, the toxins and your body's just reacting to uh, having all of these different types of toxins in it and the storing it in the fat, so I've always made that correlation that obesity is inflammation, and uh, I don't think a lot of people make that correlation, but I do
1: it is a. Great correlation, and you are absolutely right. In fact, the uh, you know when you have like abdominal obesity, and when you look at those tissues, they are inflamed. The, the fat cells are taking the heat on the inflammation, and that's because they have these toxins in them. You know, so the fat cells, you know, they're not like the liver or the pancreas. They don't have a job to do that it'll kill you. If they die, that's okay. You can just get make some more. You know, their job really is to protect you, and they'll take the the hit of the toxin. You know, instead of putting it someplace else where it's going to do much more damage, like in the pancreas or the liver, you stick it in there. You can't get rid of it because you've lost the ability to dispose of it using your natural methods because of glyphosate disrupting the liver, the liver's ability to do that. So that's really bad because glyphosate makes all the other toxins much more toxic than they would otherwise be.
0: And that includes things
1: like mercury and aluminum.
0: Right, and how does sulfur come in there? What, is, what does sulfur actually do when it comes to, um, you know, helping out with obesity?
1: Yeah, well, sulfur actually is part of that process of uh, detoxifying these. these. Hmm. Basically, they have to be um, converted into water-soluble because a lot of these toxins are fat-soluble, so of course you can stick them in the fats because they're fat-soluble. But if you're going to get rid of them, you've got to ship them in the blood, and they need to be water-soluble. And so the liver actually turns them into water-soluble compounds by adding sulfur to them. So it will add sulfate, for example, to make them water soluble, just like it does to cholesterol, by the way. That allows cholesterol also to travel freely through the blood, which then means you don't have to have LDL particles. And, of course, the LDL particles are the bad guys in the sort of so-called good cholesterol, bad cholesterol. So if you've got sulfate, then you can ship out these toxic chemicals. It, it makes them no longer toxic, and it makes them portable. So you can ship them out to the kidneys and get rid of them. But if you don't have sulfate, you can't do that, and the right. and the glyphosate disrupts your ability to produce the sulfate.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned something too. I was watching uh, the video. You mentioned something about, uh, and I don't know if I, I thought I wrote it down, but maybe I didn't. You mentioned something about, uh, and you just said something about the blood uh, colloidal suspension. I want to say is what mm-hmm. you mentioned, and you yeah. said the sulfur actually yeah. helps with that, and then you said. Something about as we grow older we lose that and I'm wondering is that because of the whole sulfur thing that we're actually losing sulfur and have that deficiency.
1: You have really done your homework. <laughs> that's perfect. I, I'm
0: like fun. you. I'm like you, Doctor Stephanie. My mind works like that. I put things together <laughs> and analyze them. But that's how my mind yeah, works. No, so.
1: that's- that's great, yes. Uh, so it's interesting because all these cells that, are, of course, the, the the blood is basically a colloidal suspension. You have all these particles mm-hmm. that are suspended in the blood. Some of them are like the LDL particles and the HDL particles. Those are the guys that they talk about the good cholesterol and the bad cholesterol, which I think are stupid terms. But um, you also have the red blood cells. I mean, those are pretty big particles in the blood, and um, they barely squeeze by through the capillaries, you know. And the white blood cells and the platelets, all those things. Are, and, of course, all the proteins that are hanging out in the blood, like the... Um, uh, albumin, you know, there's all this stuff. And um, these things are all, um, so the blood needs to be able to flow. I mean, the really amazing thing about the body is the water. And the, our body is 99% water in terms of the number of molecules. So the water molecules are small, but 99% of our molecules are water. So hmm. it's what's really interesting is that water is a really unusual molecule, and I've done a lot of studying of water lately. I need to understand it better. It's a hard, hard topic. And there's a bunch of people who are really doing interesting research on water. Uh, Gary uh, Gerald Pollock is a is a great one because you, you should try to get him on your show. Although he's really busy, but uh, he's doing great work with with water. Water, as you know, can turn into something like Jello. Like if you take you know you take, take some boiling water and you add it to a package of gelatin dessert, you know, and mm-hmm. you put it in the refrigerator and wait a few hours, it it all gets hard. You know, when you think about, it, there's just that tiny bit of powder. And everything else is water. Why did it get hard? Why is it no longer liquid? It's interesting, you know, that it does that. It's actually sort of what I would call liquid ice at that point. Well, your body wants to be mostly that kind of water. It wants to be jello. And Mm -hmm. to make it jello, you need the sulfates. But the the blood has to flow. If the blood turns into jello, you're really fried, because then you can't, it won't move, you know? Mm -hmm. You need the blood to be, um, not to be too sticky, not to be viscous. It wants to be very... uh, almost like water, right, so it can flow. But everything else needs to be um, jello. So that's a really big challenge for the body. And the sulfates will make the jello. But they also provide negative charge. So when you have the red blood cells actually have cholesterol sulfate in their membrane, this is well established. They also have enos, by the way, and they make the cholesterol sulfate using the enos when they go in the veins responding to the sunlight. So... um, they produce cholesterol sulfate, and they 've got the sulfate anions sticking outside their their cell wall. Those are negatively charged, so they're going to just if you think of two magnets that repel each other, when you try to stick them together, you put the the two poles together that are the same way, they push mm-hmm. apart right? You can put them one way they'll stick together another way they'll push apart. Well, when you have all these negatively charged suspended particles in the blood, they all repel each other, so they don't stick together, and you don't get blood clots It's the same thing for the platelets you know the red blood cells, the platelets all of them have negative charge around them, maintained by the, in part by these sulfates. There's other things, too. Carbonate, sulfates, and phosphates all are negatively charged ions that stick around the outsides of these cells and keep them from sticking together. So, so these things are really important, the negative charge. And a lot of people talk about negative charge like going walking barefoot and pulling in the negative charge from the ground. You've yeah. probably heard about that.
0: Yeah. Grounding, yeah.
1: have you heard about that? Yeah. 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 I think walking at the beach in the water is a really, really healthy thing to do because you're getting really good grounding if you're walking in the water um, and you've got the sunlight, you know, and you've got the sulfur air too, by the way, because the sulfur comes off the water, so you've really got everything you need which is why walking on the seashore is so healthy. Yeah, that's why so, I feel
0: uh, so good when I go to the beach. When I go to the beach, it's like I can, yeah. like, the minute I go there, and we live probably like 10 or 15 minutes away from the beach, the minute I step foot on the beach, it's like I can relax, forget about everything. And I'm wondering, is it, is it because of that whole thing that you just described?
1: I think so. I mean, I feel the same way, and uh, I like to spend time on the beach when I can. You know, it's, uh, it's wonderful. It's just wonderful.
0: Yeah. um, Talking about the blood, um, we talk about hemoglobin. Let's talk about iron, because I know that a lot of people that I've come contact, especially women, have an iron deficiency. How does that relate to sulfur and the whole thing and the way the blood uh, moves and, and, and everything like that?
1: Yeah, Wow, well, of course, hemoglobin, I mean, hemoglobin contains iron. When you have an iron deficiency, you're going to have a red blood cell deficiency problem. You're not going to be able to carry oxygen uh, mm-hmm. because hemoglobin uh, has iron, and the iron is what makes the hemoglobin work, you know, and so that's a, a critical issue. Um, iron is really interesting, and I've been studying it lately because it's, I think in the modern world it's both deficient and toxic at the same time, and I think glyphosate is contributing to that. Glyphosate messes up all these uh um minerals um the the way they're transported and um because iron is uh you know heme iron is iron hiding inside this heme molecule and heme iron absorbs much better than non-heme iron, iron regular just plain old iron uh, so the 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 I, th- I think that the gut bacteria actually produce heme iron that is then um absorbed across the gut uh but mm-hmm. they get uh destroyed by glyphosate so the gut bacteria get d- disrupted and, and, the, and the heme iron the iron gets chelated by glyphosate so the gut bacteria can't get at it so you end up with a problem with iron uh, delivery in the presence of glyphosate um, this is something we've talked about in our papers and other people have talked about that too glyphosate clearly disrupts iron in plants so you're going to have deficiency of iron in plants that were uh, grown exposed to uh, glyphosate for example. So that's how you can end up with a diet that's deficient in iron. And then you have this compromised iron absorption because of this issue of the heme iron not being produced. And then it's difficult to get the iron across the um, gut barrier um, if it's not heme iron. And then, of course, iron deficiency leads to anemia, which leads to exhaustion, so you don't feel good and you you bleed easily and um, a lot of problems. It can even yeah. go to pernicious anemia, which is a uh, a B12 deficiency is a different kind of um, anemia. Vitamin B12, and that's another one that's connected to glyphosate. And uh, B12 deficiency can masquerade as uh, dementia. It can look like, um, you know, Alzheimer's disease
0: yeah I wanted to get in that.' It's three actually three last things i wanted to wanted to ask you and cover before I let you go here. um The first one is uh, arthritis because I know um I mentioned on the beginning of the show how I was diagnosed with arthritis in both knees, and I was right. able to like pull the food out but i I'm wondering if that was you know also in part due to a sulfur deficiency and it's amazing to me how everything works and how your body will pull different things from, from different places to kind of compensate for what you're not getting.
1: Yes, I, uh, that's what I think is going on with arthritis. This is a theory that I have because it's an inflammation in the joints. And actually, if you look at what's happening, the joints are actually producing something called chondroitin sulfate, and then it's mm-hmm. being attacked, and the chondroitin sulfate is being picked away by this inflammation and being distributed. So actually, in a way, you could say that the body is stealing the chondroitin sulfate from the um, the joint. And um, and then delivering it to the blood, so the the blood desperately needs the sulfate, and so I think that your genetics is going to dictate which organ gets hit, you know, uh, get hit up for, for sulfate, because uh, uh-huh. if you get arthritis, then it's the joints that are getting robbed of their sulfate in order to supply the sulfate to the blood. And you mentioned celiac disease, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, Anthony Sample and I have uh, two papers uh, published on glyphosate, and the second one is all about celiac disease. And we, in that paper, we explain how you could explain all the Celiac disease is a very complicated disease with a lot of different issues, as you mentioned, the arthritis. And we could explain really all of them on the basis of how glyphosate works in that paper. And what people don't realize is that although wheat is not Roundup ready, they actually spray wheat with Roundup right before the harvest. They're doing this more and more these days as a way to uh, what they call desiccation. They kill the wheat right before the harvest, and it immediately goes to seed just before it dies. And then they, they increase the yield because of that. And then they also reduce the residue because they killed the... the so it stops growing as soon as it's, as they've harvested. You know They just want it dead at that point. And it also gets a head start on next year's weeds, um, so they really like this idea of spraying it with glyphosate right before the harvest, which means that the Roundup goes directly into the seed and into the wheat products. So uh, I believe that, and you've seen this epidemic in you know it just only recently have you seen this entire sections of almost every grocery store has a sort of gluten free section to, you know for people who have gluten intolerance. It's become a buzzword. I mean, I never heard of gluten intolerance ten years ago, and I think right. it's because of this new practice of spraying the wheat with glyphosate right before the harvest and they do it with this with barley and with sugarcane and a lot of other crops um more and more they're doing they're increasing this practice and they think Roundup is harmless so they don't see any any danger in doing this and no one's measuring again how much is actually ending up in the in the food that's derived from it so i mean if i eat wheat i always buy organic organic bread i buy organic everything but especially bread and soy and corn, these things, you have to buy them organic if you're going to eat them,
0: I think. Yeah, I, yeah, I won't ever go back to eating wheat. I just don't want to do it. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, last two topics, and I think um, this is going to uh, – these are very, very hot topics. Um, one is autism, and one is kind of uh, very, very personal for me because I watch uh, at least – two family members go through this and then I have an uncle that's presently going through it now and it's Alzheimer's dementia and the oh, other wow. one is autism. Autism because right. we've had a real skyrocket of autism and we've also had a skyrocket of dementia and Alzheimer's now. What do, what do you contribute that to?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so it's synergistic. I mean, I've got a pretty good solution for that. I've been working really hard on that topic. I, autism was the other thing that I started working on seven years ago. Well, I've been interested in autism for a long time, and I'm just very puzzled by it. And, it, you know, they keep saying it's genetic, but you see how it's more and more kids are getting it, and that's not how genetics works. You know, things that are genetic don't grow that fast. And I don't understand why they're not looking at every single environmental factor they could possibly consider, which is what I've been doing. And um, I didn't hit upon glyphosate until quite late in my studies. I knew a lot about autism before I discovered glyphosate, and I immediately knew when I saw what glyphosate could do that it solved all the problems that I was seeing in the autistic kids. I could explain everything with the glyphosate. And both autism and Alzheimer's disease correlate perfectly with glyphosate usage on corn and soy. If you look over the past 20 years and you do the plots, they coincide. It's a 0.99 Pearson correlation coefficient. It is so dramatic. This is what Nancy Swanson has figured out. I think you cannot deny that kind of correlation and say, oh, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, which is like a buzzword here all the time. When you see that kind of correlation, you have to think about the possibility of causation. And when you do, you discover that you can explain it. You can explain it physiologically very, very nicely and what's happening is that glyphosate is working in coordination with aluminum the two of them are working as partners in crime i call it partners in crime to mm-hmm. destroy the brain and alzheimers and autism are the same basically the same pathology expressed in different age groups so you don't get the same symptoms because it's different although they are both sort of <laughs> out of touch with reality you might say you know it's the um the brain is being attacked by the aluminum and by the glyphosate and glyphosate basically uh, enables the aluminum to get to the brain is what i think and glyphosate itself is also destructive so um... it's uh, you know there's a paper that i uh, well first of all i should mention kidney failure which may not sound like it's related but there's mm-hmm. been an epidemic of kidney failure in uh, agricultural workers in central america and also in india who are working in the sugarcane fields. specifically sugarcane agricultural workers are dying young of kidney failure And so people have been studying that, and there was a really neat paper that came out very recently from Sri Lanka where they could very clearly see that when they looked at who was getting the kidney failure and who wasn't, they found that the places where glyphosate was being used to spray, to kill the sugar cane right before the harvest, this desiccation that I mentioned before, those Mm. were the places where people were dying of kidney failure. So they linked it to the glyphosate, and they linked it to arsenic. As well, arsenic plus glyphosate. Arsenic is like aluminum. Both of them are a plus-three um, metal, and uh, both of them are toxic. And arsenic uh, ends up, uh, glyphosate escorts the arsenic to the kidney and car- carries it like a, a stealth bomb and delivers it to the kidney and kills the kidney. And I think that the glyphosate does the same thing with aluminum, except that it takes it to the brain and, um, and kills the brain with the aluminum, and particularly yeah. in the pineal gland. It gets into the brainstem nuclei, um, you know, through um, intricate
0: paths. Yeah. yeah, it's so it's so funny because I know I read an article a while ago about uh, them finding uh, a lot of aluminum in the brain, and what's more and more interesting now that I was listening to you talk is the fact that we have aluminum in deodorants too. And you, the lymph nodes are yes. that place where you are they carry things around the body, so it's very very interesting yes. that this whole thing. And then you have. Of course, everybody's eating corn and soy now because it's in everything, and and uh, glyphosate it, glyphosate is in there, and um, so it it makes a lot of sense. It makes more sense to me now than when I started talking to you. That you know, yeah, we're a it's a mess. Of six. I mean, I think it's really yeah.
1: scary. <clears throat>
0: yeah, it's very. So yes, toxic. you're right
1: about the um, the uh, deodorant actually is linked to breast cancer.
0: Deodorant yeah, yeah. usage. Yeah, my mom actually passed the breast cancer in 2005. I always share this with people and I remember okay. her having a problem with her lymph nodes. They actually had to do surgery on her. And then years after that surgery, that's when she found out that she had uh, you know, she had breast cancer. So I always advise, especially women, I always advise women to get some type of natural deodorant and quit using this mm-hmm. all this stuff that you find in the in the grocery stores. But I am definitely glad you came on the show. I am a nutrition nerd as I know you are and this has been yes. a very very <laughs> good discussion and it's made me think and when I like I said when I saw your quotes in Cholesterol Clarity I'm like, "Ha, oh, I got to get her on the show because even reading those quotes it was just something that kind of opened a can of worms for me and made a lot of yes. things click." So, um I really thank you for being on the show tonight. I know your time is valuable. So um, I'm going to let you go. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners tonight, audience?
1: Oh, gosh. When people say that, I always freeze because there's, like, so many things I could say. But I I guess I will say this. Good news about organic. I just heard 13% increase in organic over the past year. So organic is selling, and and I would encourage people to go organic. I mean, basically spend the extra money, buy the organic food. You will feel better. You will save Uh money on health, enormous amounts of money on health down the road. You know, you'll keep yourself from having Alzheimer's. You'll keep your kids from getting autism. I mean, it's definitely a win. So buy the organic, promote organic, and we can, we can win this deal without even having to get the government on board with it.
0: Yeah, good stuff. Thank you, Dr. Stephanie. I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: All right. That was a good show. I know some of you may not have been able to follow that show. There's a lot of scientific stuff in there. But if you go back and listen to stuff, I, I, I know when I started out uh, on this thing, I had to read stuff two, three times. And I consider myself who's someone who's very well-versed. And, um You just have to go back and study this stuff and I'll listen to podcasts two, three times if there's something I understand until it finally clicks and I'll go to a dictionary or things like that. But one of the things I would urge you to do is find out more about your health. There are a lot of us who are just going to the doctor and saying, here, take my health into your hands and you do something with it. And our bodies are so amazing. We have no idea that what we can do, how much healing we can encounter. And it's also always amazing to me how we can learn how to use our iPhone and every nuance of our iPhone, every app, but you ask people how their blood works, how their heart works or anything else within their body, they can't tell you. So it's up to you to learn about your body because you only have one body uh, and you're only going to have one body. So it's up to you again, to learn as much as you can about it. So next week, um, We have Dr. Michael Hollick, as I mentioned on this show. He'll be coming on to talk about the vitamin D solution. That's Wednesday. And then Monday I'm actually having a show with um, Eric Nies. If you remember Eric Nies, Eric Nies is from the first real world that came on MTV, and he's doing a lot of good things right now. Uh, He's on a spiritual path and helping a lot, a lot of individuals. And I think it's going to be really surprising to you about what he's doing. And I actually met Eric, Uh, Down here and uh, in a pet store and I have a real uh, interesting uh, story to tell about that when we uh, get on that show So Monday will be a special show same time at 8 o'clock and then Wednesday will be the regular show again Michael Holick, vitamin D solution at 8 o'clock So both of those shows are at 8 o'clock And we're just going to keep this thing rolling and getting more and more people to come on and talk about their books and talk about health so thanks And I will see you next time, same fat time and same fat channel. Peace and love.